0: Welcome to the Better Together podcast brought to you by the Emergency Services Foundation.
1: This is a podcast dedicated to supporting and improving the mental health and well-being of the many people, paid and volunteer,
0: who serve our community in emergency management roles. My name's Susan McKenzie, CEO at the Emergency Services Foundation.
1: And I'm Dr. Sarah Hewitt, ESF's Learning Network Program Manager. Today we'll be speaking with Dr. David Lawrence. He's the Principal Research Fellow at the University of Western Australia. After working at the Australian Bureau of Statistics for 10 years, Dr. Lawrence undertook a PhD in Public Health and Psychiatry and Behavioural Science at the University of Western Australia. He brought his statistical skills to research projects, including Answering the Call, which surveyed over 21,000 paid and volunteer personnel and was the first national study of police and emergency services mental health. In fact, this study was the largest on the topic undertaken anywhere in the world, and it created quite a stir when it was released in 2018.
0: David's interest in the mental health of police and emergency services personnel has more recently been applied to a study called After the Fires. David led this major study, which surveyed over 4,000 people from fire and rescue agencies across Australia. Again, the focus of this study is on the mental health impacts of service and how to deliver effective support which is, of course, of great interest to us at the ESF. Let's find out a bit more about both of those important studies. Thanks for joining us, David.
2: Thank you. Pleasure to be with you both today.
0: Great. Now, the Beyond Blue Answering the Call study is absolutely central to everything we do at ESF. You know, when we talk about strategy, we say this is what underpins our work. Could you tell us... How did that study come about?
2: Well, it was a Beyond Blue initiative. As you know, Beyond Blue has been involved in workplace mental health uh, for many years and Quite a few years ago, we were involved with Beyond Blue in doing a uh, survey of doctors and uh, medical students, but uh, Beyond Blue started their emergency services uh, mental health program in about uh, 2015, I think, and uh, they developed a good practice uh, framework, first of all, and then went on to uh, fund the answering call uh, study. So the study was funded by Beyond Blue and a funding contribution from the Bushfire Natural Hazards uh, Cooperative Research Centre.
0: And what was that Answering the Call study trying to understand?
2: So we wanted to find out what was the rate of mental health issues and mental health problems in uh, emergency services uh, personnel, but we also wanted to look at uh, suicide self-harming behaviours. But uh, we particularly wanted to look at uh, use of uh, support services, need for support services, the type of uh, help that uh, people access, and issues around uh, stigma and uh, things like that, which are at core to uh, Beyond Blue's uh, mission, of course, to see how we can better support uh, people in the emergency services sector.
0: And so what did you do exactly? How did you collect the information?
2: So we worked closely with almost all the agencies in the sector. I think uh, 33 of uh, 36 agencies at the time agreed to participate in the study, which was uh, a fantastic level of cooperation across the sector. And we worked with the sector to uh, select samples of uh, employees and volunteers across ambulance, police, fire and rescue, rural fire, state emergency service uh, agencies across uh, the country. And we also uh, were able to uh, uh, recruit a sample of uh, former employees from mainly police agencies so more difficult to identify former employees not all agencies keep contact with people after they leave the service
0: no that actually we're doing some work at the moment called well beyond which is about people beyond service and that's one of the things that we're saying is for goodness sake keeping contact with these people mm. um so what were the key findings of answering the call?
2: Well, it's the largest survey that's ever been done of mental health and well-being in emergency services uh, sector. And uh, I think we've established what the baseline rate of uh, mental health issues in the sector is. And I guess people weren't particularly surprised uh, to uh, find that uh, these are... workplaces that are higher risk for uh, mental health issues we found about 10 uh, percent of employees in the sector um, met uh, criteria for probable ptsd and uh, even higher rates probably of anxiety and uh, depression but what we uh, found uh, is that it's not just that uh, exposure to uh traumatic events in the workplace and cumulative exposure to trauma negatively impacts on people's uh, mental health. It's about the culture of the workplace, about the culture of the organisations, the level of uh, support that we're able uh, to provide. And there's quite a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, negative attitudes towards mental health and well-being uh, issues that we just don't talk about, uh, I guess, skills that are missing uh, from uh, workplaces. And just, I guess, a culture of emergency services being fundamentally people who are there to help others and feeling that they need to be strong and not uh, need help themselves that leads to many people waiting far too long to seek help when problems are are developing and that's when we see significant uh, problems develop so if there are things that we can uh, do to try and uh, change that culture around uh, emergency services i think that would be, be positive
0: it's an incredible study, isn't it, to have those agents, that number of people and that number of agencies involved. It must have been like herding cats.
2: <laughs> it uh, certainly had its uh, challenges. That's, uh, I guess, one of the interesting features of the sector that it is uh, state-based and uh, there are a, a large number of agencies involved, so a large number of uh, permission processes, consultation processes, many, many people to be consulted, lots of uh, fun with that. But uh, I think it's a strength and also, I guess, a limitation of uh, uh, the, the uh, sector. I guess one of the issues we know around uh, former employees in the sector is that unlike in defence for example where there is sort of a structure support uh, ex-military uh, personnel we don't really have that uh, structure and it is particularly difficult for state-based organisations. you know if someone retires from uh, rural fire in victoria and moves to uh, queensland to be closer to their family they're not even in the same state as the organization anymore and uh, we just don't have that uh, structure in place to be able to support uh, people once they've uh, left their organizations
0: so Were there any surprises in the findings from answering the call for you?
2: I think it's a good uh, question. It's uh, A lot of people have uh, said to us, you know, what we saw in answering uh, the call, it was just telling us their lived experience of what uh, life in the emergency service is like. But at the same time, although it's not particularly a surprise that these are uh, uh, higher risk uh, professions, for mental health issues, it's something that we weren't really taking that uh, much uh, attention to. Like there was a uh, Senate inquiry going on at the time we were doing answering the call, and uh, a lot of people who gave testimony uh, to that uh, Senate inquiry uh, did so before the results of the survey uh, came out. I know that there was a lot of uncertainty in the testimony that was uh, presented about just. Actually, was there a higher rate of mental health issues in the emergency services sector? We definitively know that that is the case now. We have unambiguous uh, data to uh, to demonstrate that that is the case. And while I guess it's not a surprise to people who work in the sector to know that—that's uh, their lived experience of uh, of uh, life in the emergency services—we now have the official data for government to be able to say, yes, this is an issue we need to uh, to work on. I think for me personally something that I think in hindsight makes sense but that I had never really thought about before doing this uh, study was uh, the interplay between uh, trauma and uh, issues like PTSD, anxiety and depression and uh, bullying and management issues in the workplace. A lot of people who go through the workers' compensation process, for example, one of the complicating issues is that uh, From the agency's perspective, you know, people have to try and demonstrate uh, in workers' compensation that the uh, mental health issues that they're dealing with were work-related. It often comes out that there's workplace conflict and uh, sometimes uh, workplace uh, bullying and issues that are raised. And... When you stop and think about it, when you think of what the symptoms of uh, PTSD typically are, that uh, people uh, uh, develop that uh, hypervigilance, that suspiciousness, difficulty in maintaining uh, personal uh, relationships, that we see that this being manifested in the workplace, you know, someone who's worked in an organisation for maybe 20, 30 years, had a great uh, career, but uh, they've reached a point where management perceives this person as being difficult to work with for some reason. And they don't see that they're difficulty is coming from the mental health symptoms that they've developed because of all the work that they've done over many, many years. And it's misread mistaken as being this person's difficult this person's just hard to manage in the workplace and we don't seem to have that corporate knowledge of you know someone has been in the sector for such a long time and worked for this agency for such a long time we know what this person is like and we know when uh, their behavior has changed to be able to say okay this is uh, when a problem has started to to develop and I guess that's just because organization you know people are posted to different uh, uh, stations or brigades etc you know there's turnover in staff and so It's difficult for the organisation to keep that uh, corporate knowledge. But then I think it's raised in my mind what can we do to uh, better equip people who are in management supervisory roles within the sector to be able to think of uh, these sorts of uh, uh, behaviours as signs that a person might be struggling in some way and could uh, benefit from some sort of help rather than considering, oh, well, this is a person who's just difficult, this is a person who's uh, hard to work with.
0: In fact, that's fundamental to our Leading for Better Mental Health program um, that we spoke about in the last podcast is that we're, we're really working with people around that to understand that it's the workplace factors as much as the trauma that's the problem and the and the team leader or the manager's role and responsibility in influencing that culture um, is very interesting. So, mm. um how have these findings for from answering the call that was released in 2018, so four years ago, two of those were basically non-existent, so <laughs> let's say two years ago, um, how have those findings influenced the sector nationwide, do you think?
2: Well, I think change certainly occurs slowly in and- Government, uh, we all know that, and uh, these are large organisations that uh, don't change uh, quickly or or overnight. But I think there have been some uh, positive signs. Uh, we did uh, release the results from answering the call uh, in time for it to be incorporated into the uh, Senate inquiry, and uh, there were some positive recommendations that came out of that. One of the, I guess, big things that was just so obvious from the answering the call uh, data was just how many people who had gone through the workers' compensation system and had really negative experiences of that and how really important it was to uh, reform workers' compensation. We have already seen in a number of states that there have been some moves in that area. There have been uh, presumptive uh, legislation changes where uh, people don't have to prove that their uh, mental health injury occurred at work, that there's a Uh, a recognition that these are high-risk professions for those sorts of uh, uh, problems uh, to occur. It's too early to know how positive those changes are going to be, but that's uh, one positive thing that uh, has uh, happened. Uh, Beyond Blue did uh, provide uh, uh, some support for all the agencies that participated in the study to uh, develop uh, and refine their mental health uh, programs, as well as the reports that we've made uh, publicly available. We did a report for each individual agency in the study and uh, provided those uh, to them. So there have definitely been some uh, positive changes in uh, some of the agencies, and I know that the uh, National Resilience and Recovery Agency is working on a national action plan for uh, emergency services, uh, mental health, uh, including uh, volunteers, and uh, we're eagerly uh, awaiting that. And hopefully, there will continue to be over time uh, more positive uh, things come out of that. It takes time to to get uh, changes. We all know.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to hand over to Sarah now to talk about your more recent study. Sarah?
1: Yeah, we're also very interested in the recent study or the one you're still doing called After the Fires. Could you tell us a little about that research? How did that come about?
2: So the After the Fires uh, study came out of, uh, well, we had through answering the call, established, I guess, a baseline of what we knew to be the mental health of the sector. And so after the terrible black summer fires, we thought, well, there's an opportunity to build on that basis to see if we can look at what the specific impact of those fires and that response was. So we were fortunate enough to win some funding from the Medical Research Future Foundation from the Australian government to allow us to conduct that study. So this uh, study is uh, limited to just the uh, fire and emergency, rural fire and uh, state emergency services uh, sectors. And We know that uh, uh, police and ambulance and other emergency services were involved as well, but uh, with the amount of resources we had available, that's uh, what we've been able to do with this uh, study.
1: Were they the, the agencies, what states did they come from?
2: So it's a a nationwide uh, study and we know that uh, there was uh, a concentration of the uh, Black Summer fires on the East Coast, but it was also the case that uh, volunteers travelled from all over the country to to participate in those fires. And that was one of the interesting things that we found in the study was just how many people had to volunteer to travel interstate and uh, fight those fires and how much time and how much effort to so many volunteers put into the the response, which was amazing, as we all know.
0: Can I, I just yeah. ask there, Sarah? Sorry mm. to interrupt. So the people, the four thousand that you had in this study, were they recruited via the agencies? Yes, yes, they were. Okay. Mm. So you
1: spoke with anybody who had had turned out and helped in the response to the Black Saturday, uh, Black Summer fires, and who and what did you? Who did you speak with exactly, and what did you find uh, when you? Okay, so surveys right so you spoke with them via a survey is that right
2: the study has uh, two components so one is a national survey and uh, that is conducted as an online uh, survey we also have uh, conducted a number of uh, focus groups and individual interviews so uh, one-on-one discussions mainly over zoom because of uh, difficulties uh, traveling due to the uh, coronavirus to uh, give us uh, more perspective on uh, some of the issues as well
1: yeah, okay, so it had uh, two components, a qualitative
2: and yes. a quantitative.
1: And what yes. did you find? Um, obviously, two different things. You could sort of talk to that high-level statistical finding and mm-hmm. also some of the more in-depth findings from the Qual interviews.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So we found that there were about 80,000 personnel who were responding to the Black Summer Fires and uh, about 80% were were volunteers. Clearly, we have a very wow. strong dependence on on volunteers. I think when we first started uh, the answering the call work, uh, and you know, that was only like five years ago, there was a feeling among some people, I don't know that it's ever really been true, but you know, some people felt, you know, the paid firefighters are the ones who do the really dangerous stuff. And uh, that uh, in the the worst situations, it will be the paid people who go in uh, first. And clearly, uh, that's not uh, the case. There is just, and with the Black Summer, it's just so uh, huge uh, the uh, requirement of what was uh, needed the work that uh, volunteers was doing was not really different in any uh, substantive way from what uh, paid uh, staff were doing you know we had almost all the available paid firefighters were deployed but we only have about 20,000 paid firefighters in Australia so you know there's just not enough to. that we we really depend on uh, volunteers, and you know, it's no longer the case that we can think of volunteer firefighting as being, uh, you know, cutting uh, fire breaks and uh, cleaning up uh, after fires go through. If, if people ever thought that that was the case, you know, volunteer firefighting is uh, at the face. Uh, it is uh, genuinely dangerous. It is uh, uh, really important uh, work to uh, protect uh, rural communities, and uh, we have to uh, value the work that uh, volunteers do. Mm, mm
1: so that was a major finding that the volunteers played such a significant role and put themselves at that front line yeah, um, so
2: we looked at whether people in the course of the black summer had been exposed to or traumatic experiences and if they'd been in life-threatening uh, situations about one in four personnel whether they were employed or uh, volunteers said they had been in a life-threatening uh, situation over the course of the black summer response we found that uh, It is definitely cumulative uh, trauma over a period of a person's uh, career that's more a risk factor rather than any one particular event. But people who had uh, life-threatening experiences uh, during the Black Summer fires definitely uh, We found had higher rates of uh, PTSD, anxiety, and depression coming out of uh, the uh, the Black Summer. So we've estimated that uh, amongst people who were exposed to traumatic experiences, about five thousand people are at high risk of uh, mental health issues, either having PTSD, suicidal ideation, or very high psychological distress. And uh, at the uh, one year after the the survey, when we uh, one year after the black fire summers when we did the the survey we found mm-hmm. that only about 20 uh, percent of those people had received uh help or support for those uh those issues that they'd uh, developed
1: did did the quote qual- did the interviews uh tease out why it was that so, so few had actually sought help
2: there's many different uh different issues that uh, stand in the way. There isn't just one thing that we've uh, been able to identify and mm-hmm. uh, we've tried to group them into a uh, different uh, categories. So part of what we know about uh, help seeking is not just unique to the emergency services sector in all the parts of Australian society. There are issues in terms of mental health with when the typical course of development of uh, mental health issues for most people is a gradual onset and uh, developing uh, severity of symptoms over a period of time that can be months or years. It's not always the case. Some people have uh, a sudden onset, but uh, for many people, because it is a, a gradual thing that uh, kind of creeps up on them, they mm-hmm. just wait to see how it's going to turn out. And they think, well, I can handle this for the time being. We can just deal with this you know, within the family and deal with it uh, informally and uh, just wait too long to, uh, yeah. to seek help. We also know that uh, there's a, a high uh, culture of uh, within Australia of uh, alcohol use, uh, drinking as a, a means of uh, socialising, which is really important. It's really, really important that people take time to discuss the things that happen within uh, the emergency services uh, sort of work that they do, and that's, that's a really important uh, social uh, thing. But mm. we can also use alcohol as a way of masking uh, symptoms of developing mental health issues and when people start uh, drinking as their way of coping that can stand in the way of uh, seeking appropriate help and it can delay when you actually go and seek appropriate help but another big issue that's come out of sorry David,
0: uh, can I just ask you mm -hmm? was there um, a real evidence of alcohol being used a lot by the people in your survey
2: uh, yes, yes, there was. So we did ask about uh, alcohol uh, consumption and uh, uh, there are high rates of alcohol consumption in Australian society. It's not unique to uh, to emergency uh, services, but... Uh, uh, about half of uh, the workforce uh, exceed NHMRC guidelines for uh, safe uh, alcohol uh, consumption. And you know, people can argue about whether the, the NHMRC guidelines are an appropriate uh, benchmark or not. But what I is
0: think, that? What is that? Uh,
2: so, if you uh, regularly drink uh, more than uh, four uh, four drinks, then you can cons- stand a drink a day or cons- a week. <laughs> Four drinks a day is considered to be at, uh, at uh, risk of uh, both short-term and long-term harm, and uh, surprisingly, a large number of people uh, drink alcohol at uh, that sort of level. From the perspective of mental health and well being, what we're really thinking is important, though, not so much how much you drink, the context in which you drink and uh, the reason uh, that uh, you're, uh, you're uh, doing it, and when there are changes in people's drinking behaviour. If people are drinking uh, socially and using it as a way to uh, debrief and uh, discuss uh, issues that have come up in the course of uh, their work, their volunteer work, great, that's uh, really important and uh, something that can be very valuable. If you're using it to uh, mask uh, uh, troubling uh, symptoms that you're experiencing, then that's probably where it becomes unhelpful. And we know that uh, many people do turn to alcohol as uh, their first uh, line of uh, coping and uh, If, as a result of that, you then don't go and speak to someone about uh, something that's bothering you, if you leave it uh, uh, bottled up inside, if it continues to fester, then that's when it can really develop into a significant problem. That's what we would really like to change. So, if there's a way within uh, the culture of emergency services, think you know, if you see someone uh, within uh, the brigade, within uh, the the station, their uh, alcohol uh, use is changing, maybe it's an opportunity to just to take a mate aside and say, you know, is there something you would like to talk about?
0: Yeah, it's a symptom, isn't it? Yeah, mm.
1: yeah it's a really important point. It's it's not just about a, a benchmark figure. It's about that interaction with how it's used and what it's used for and changes and so on. Well, you made, you made a point before that you wanted to raise another issue. Do you want to go back to that? Um, Yeah, well, I guess the other
2: thing that uh, I guess is really a big issue in coming out of uh, after the fires is just the scale of that particular emergency and the number of people who uh, needed help. We know that uh, uh, Australia wasn't really prepared for the size of uh, that uh, that disaster in so many ways, not just in terms of mental health support, in terms of how you rebuild communities, uh, housing, things like that. But in terms of mental health support in everyday life, the mental health services that we have are stretched pretty much all the time when you have a major disaster and the number of people who might need help increases we just yeah. don't have the capability we don't have the capacity to be able to scale up the services because they're already stretched and uh, particularly when you have uh, you know the typical culture within emergency services as you know people go into the emergency services because they want to help others and many people uh, who do that also have a, a stoic attitude to themselves and you know, want to be able to uh, uh, cope with their own uh, problems so that they can help uh, other people. So if you're already the sort of person who doesn't really want to seek help and there isn't any help available because you know the wait list is so long, then you don't want to be the person who uh, puts extra pressure on uh, someone who's already overworked. So that's an yeah. issue that I think we have to think about. Clearly, with a, a warming climate, a drying climate, we're seeing more of these uh, sorts of intense uh, disasters. The nature mm-hmm. of emergency services work is really changing. We can't pretend that uh, volunteer are firefighting, that uh, uh, what uh, SES and uh, rural firefighters uh, do is uh, mostly benign. There are going to be uh, uh, high-risk situations and there are going to be situations where, you know, the outcome for the community is not always uh, positive, and people are going to be affected by that. I mean, that's just uh, that's human right. nature to be affected by those sorts of things. So we have to have the capacity to be able to uh, to scale up our response when those things happen to support uh, the people who are doing their best to support our communities.
1: Yeah, that, that's a that's a really important point. Um, those fires were enormous and and devastating. Um just just unbelievable, but because COVID just came along so quickly after them, it's somehow um, faded in the public imagination. Um, that's something I've, I've observed in a way—not obviously to the people that who, who it's affected—but I just mean the general public. One of the questions I wanted to ask you in relation to that point about the impacts long term and the implications of those impacts for the sustainability of the services what tell me about the longitudinal aspect of this study and what you hope to achieve by taking that long-term approach
2: so we're going to be taking i guess more of a medium rather than a long-term approach just with the the funding that we've got but we do have the okay. funding to do a a second wave of the study and that's about to, to go into the field actually so uh, and we'll also be doing a, a second round of uh, focus group uh, interviews
0: now, so we what will have are an be looking at david
2: well, we know that uh, it's not just individual events, but accumulation of traumatic uh, experiences that does tend to impact people. But we also know that the typical course of uh, mental health issues is this sort of gradual onset, slow development over a period of time. So, yeah, the first uh, study that we did uh, essentially 12 months after the uh, Black Summer fires, you know, some people you know, weren't even at the stage where they were able to participate in the survey because it was still too raw for them to be able to uh, talk to us. And we know that there will be people who will have uh, longer-term issues coming out of those uh, those uh, fires. That it's not just something that uh, pops up straight away and we resolve uh, quickly. We know that help-seeking often takes uh, years rather than, than, uh, than months. So we need to uh, continue to look at what the, the longer-term uh, impacts are going to be. And I think uh, from a cumulative trauma point of view, because there were so many people who were exposed to traumatic events, in the Black Summer fires. There are more people now who are going to be potentially at risk of having cumulative traumas when in the future more difficult things uh, occur. So we'll probably see an increase in the number of people who are exposed to cumulative traumas over time if we see more of these uh, large scale disasters occurring.
0: Somebody that we're working with um, was deployed with South Australian um, volunteers coming over to Victorian Black Saturday and he was providing psychological support. And he said that what he was dealing with was Ash Wednesday. Mm -hmm. You know, they went to Black Saturday, but he was actually, they were dealing with, and, of course, that triggered um, Ash Wednesday Mm. and that uh, cumulative trauma. I mean, that was, what, 30 years before, and they were still dealing with those things. So I think that cumulative Mm. trauma is something that we we really do need to understand a bit better.
2: Well, absolutely, and it More is the nature ever. of emergency services work that most people are in it for the long haul. Most people yeah. are, think of it as a career, and volunteers as well have. Uh, you know, there are many families who have been uh, volunteering uh, in uh, for uh, generations. So absolutely. absolutely, these things are going to continue uh, to impact, and you know, when there's another major disaster, of course, it can trigger memories of uh, of uh, previous disasters that have been. Uh, and-
1: Especially, especially like you mentioned before at that, that intersection of climate change, you know, and the expectations that there's going to be more severe and frequent disasters and changing population patterns, with mm. more people living in the countryside and larger numbers of them, and so on. Mm. It's a very complicated picture
0: and quite quite concerning.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely
0: so is there a relationship between answering the call study and after the fires
2: well the after the fires uh a lot of the questions were drawn from questions that were used in answering the call so that we could measure a change over time. I guess uh, one positive thing that we have seen uh, in the After the Fires uh, data, if we put aside the people who were exposed to uh, traumatic experiences in the Black Summer and just look generally at the fire agencies that had participated in the survey, this is mainly true for the uh, paid firefighters not so much for volunteers we did actually see that there are some positive changes in the overall uh, rates of well-being in fire agencies and uh, some positive indicators of positive cultural change That uh, some of the agencies do seem to be more open to uh, discussing uh, mental health issues and do seem to have uh, better programs uh, in place.
0: Oh, um, that's, uh, that's good to hear.
2: Yeah. I think uh we need to see, I guess, the same sort of developments in the uh, volunteer sector. I don't think the volunteer sector has uh, had the same degree of resourcing as uh, the uh, paid sector has to be, uh, put the uh, programs and the supports uh, in place, and uh, hopefully that will happen.
0: That's, a, that's good. Look, you mentioned before that there were 82,000 people involved in um, responding to the Black Summer fires, and mm. 78% of those were volunteers. Yes. Um it really is quite frightening when you think, you know, what if we don't have those volunteers? You know, we're really in the poo, aren't we? So what are some of the considerations the sector needs to address to retain this enormous volunteer workforce mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm.
2: future? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, one of the questions we asked in the, the survey was how did the experience of the Black Summer Fires uh, affect your commitment to, to volunteering and uh, do you expect to continue volunteering uh, in the longer term and uh, we saw more people who had uh, said that it strengthened their commitment to, to volunteering than saying that uh, they've uh, changed uh, their uh, attitude in the other direction so I think uh, that's positive. I think one of the things that certainly came out of the focus group interviews in particular, is people volunteer not so much because they have a particular commitment to an agency, but because they have such a strong commitment to serving their local communities. And the sense that uh, people have of the impact that this has had on their communities has only strengthened uh, the importance of uh, maintaining those uh, volunteer connections. But I think we do still have to take some really important lessons out of this. We know that uh, volunteer work is challenging we know that there are real uh, demands that are being placed on our volunteer firefighters and uh, emergency services personnel we need to make sure that we have the support in place to be able to uh, give people what they need to be able to uh, manage with the uh, complexity and the intensity of the work that they're doing. And uh, I think we need to uh, uh, do more to uh, ensure that the type of uh, mental health wellbeing support that we're now providing in some of uh, the paid uh, agencies, if we can increase that level in volunteer sector as well, because otherwise we will be at risk of people uh, burning out, of people developing uh, uh, issues related to uh, cumulative uh, trauma over time if we aren't able to put those uh, same mechanisms in place.
0: Well, that sort of in a way answered the next question I was going to say is that, you know, basically these studies are, are really compelling evidence for improving mental health of the sector with a greater focus on prevention of injury um, what's just something that you, you know, if you had a one that you would like to see done across the sector to better protect and promote the well-being of people, what, what would it be?
2: Well, there isn't just one thing. I think there are a number of things we're so but far But you've only away got from...
0: one wish. Okay.
2: What? Okay. Okay. I, I respect Even what you're wishes, saying. I do like to, to push back just a little bit by saying yeah. that we're not at the stage of, our development in terms of mental health and well-being in the sector, that we're only just one thing away from being great. We're- Still at a fairly early stage, there's a lot of things that, uh, that we can do uh, from the prevention stage through to the uh, end stage uh, support. You know, Workers' compensation changes that have come out of the survey, they're really important, but they are at that, uh, that uh, pointy end. We would prefer to see people not develop uh, to that stage where they need to seek uh, help from the workers' compensation system. I think if there was one thing that uh, we could change, I would really like to see if we can change the, uh, the fundamental attitudes that we have about emergency services as being people who are there to help others and therefore don't need to help themselves. If we are able to say you know, people go into the emergency services because they want to help their communities and if you're in it for the long haul, and particularly for something like the Black Summit from time to time, you will be called to events where the outcome isn't perfect, where there is... Uh, uh, sometimes loss of life, whether it's loss of property, etc. Just hearing about this stuff on the news is uh, negatively affecting for for many people. If you're there responding to these events and it's your job to try and protect the community from suffering these things, obviously it's going to have an impact. That's just human nature. But yeah. we seem to have this culture of saying, "Well, it shouldn't affect us because we're the people who help, <clears throat> and because we have that uh, culture that we never need uh, help. We just." we don't talk about it. And because we don't talk about it, it festers and it develops over a period of time into something that can have a really negative impact on us. If we just talked about it more, and we're more open to the fact that we're doing it to help. And of course, when things go badly, when the terrible things happen, it's going to have a negative impact. I think that would be a positive change.
0: That's interesting, because we're just working on a program called Let's Talk. So there you
2: go. Well, that's fantastic. If we can encourage more people to talk, that would just be great.
0: It's been terrific speaking with you, David. Thank you very much. Absolute uh, pleasure. And thank you for listening to this Emergency Services Foundation Better Together podcast, which aims to provide you with insights about mental health and wellbeing from experts, thought leaders and people on the ground.
1: If you want to know more about what we do, or better still support our work, please
0: go to esf.com.au.